welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Welcome back, everyone. We are in our summer series where we're just hearing stories from various amazing first responders and frontline workers. I'm so grateful to join you again with an amazing guest, and I can hardly wait for you guys to hear it. Let's dive in. All right, friends, I'm really sorry to share this with you, but after some really frustrating tech issues, Jim and I lost our initial recording where he shares his kind of bio and backstory, and we weren't able to re-record it. So in a second, you'll hear the rest of our recording that we were able to save and salvage, thank goodness, but I want to give you a really quick recap of Jim's background. Jim Dudley retired from the San Francisco Police Department after 32 years of service, serving in all ranks from patrol officer to deputy chief of patrol and investigations. He holds a BA from San Francisco State University in criminal justice studies and a master's degree from UC Irvine in criminology. He's a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and the Police Executive Research Forum training at Harvard University. Jim has been teaching criminal justice studies full-time at San Francisco State and does security, police practices, and criminal justice consulting. Jim has been the host of the Policing Matters podcast and currently writes for PoliceOne.com. He is a kayaker, fly fisherman, hiker, backpacker, and sports fan, and I am so thankful that he was able to join me today. So with all of that background bio, here we go. So I think that's the thing is like, I don't know that there's a lot of people that make it 30 plus years in this kind of industry at this stage in the game anymore. I don't know a lot of people that make it that far. And I think that that's a pretty special thing to be able to accomplish. I'm curious what you think maybe contributed to that for you. Well, I think, I mean, I don't think it's that uncommon for police careers to go 30 years. Um, And I think, you know, it's different than, you know, public sector jobs where you're stuck in a job for all, you know, all that time. In my 32 years, I probably moved positions and assignments maybe three dozen times. So the training and the experience and the variables and meeting different people and, 
you know, being assigned to different stations and, you know, moving around, you know, frankly, that I was used to that as a kid. Yeah. And so uh, for me, it was like a new experience. It was a fresh experience. And I always welcomed those new challenges. Um, you know, believe it or not, I was an introvert as a kid growing mm -hmm. up. And uh, I wouldn't say I was shy, but I was I, I was feeling afraid, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, going in the police department, I mean, it, you know, from reserves through the police academy, I got really self-confident in what, what I could do physically and learning. I wasn't always a great student, but for whatever reason, you know, because of policing issues that fascinated me, I was more interested in learning about them. And I'm really glad I paid yeah. attention during training. Yeah, fair. I mean, I think, and I wonder if there's differences in the American versus Canadian systems, because I think that I, or maybe it's just my perspective because of what I do for a living. And, and these are the people that I get to see are the ones who um, thought they were entering a 30 plus year career intended on that when they started. Um, and then for various reasons, largely, again, because of what I do for a living, the people I'm seeing have, have had to exit the work because of mental health challenges mm -hmm. that have, have made it very difficult to stay in despite really wanting to and despite really loving what they do. Um, but I also find that a lot of what I hear is like, it's hard to stay in because the systems are so different, um, than they once were, uh, the kind of, uh, bureaucratic toxicity of various pieces in the system are kind of so broken that it feels almost irreparable, um, or hard to stay working within without really sacrificing something of ourselves in substantial mm -hmm. ways. Um, and that like the exposure points are different than maybe they used to be like the demands and expectations put on law enforcement now, um, are just so varied and, um, and diverse in ways that the training doesn't maybe fully encapsulate. And so having to keep pace with that is a lot for people, but I think you're right that like changing roles within this greater body of what is law enforcement is probably part of what supports some amount of that sustainability is not feeling stuck for any particular length of time. Yeah, I know. I mean, in, in San Francisco police department has 2000 sworn. So yeah. you know, not everybody has the luxury of being able to move around like that. If you're in right. a small department, like in, in America, more than 50% of the agencies have less than 50 people. So yeah. think about that. They, they really may be in those situations where they don't you know, get that lateral or, sure. you know, the, you know, the other kinds of movement within an organization. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a fair reflection. I'm curious, like, it sounds like you entered the work, having some ideas of what it looked like, given some of your interactions as a kid and youth. What did you imagine it was going to be like? Like, what did you think was going to be like a great day in the life as an, as law enforcement? And what did you think were going to be the challenges you were likely to face back at that stage in the game? Yeah, so, you know, all I, all I knew about policing was what I saw in the movies or on TV or the news. And so I just knew there were some really evil people out there. And I wanted to be on the side that went after them, right? I didn't want to be a crook. I didn't want to be a criminal. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I really paid attention to the training because in my mind, I had an idea what policing was about, but it was often countered by reality. Yeah, totally. So, so 
imagining what it was going to be like given all of the media exposure being the like baseline what surprised you like what ended up being the things that you actually found really life-giving or is fine uh like satisfying and what were the things that ended up being the challenges that you maybe didn't expect given that you were taking it from tv yeah so you know the portrayal of the cops going out and you know being in this paramilitary organization sitting at desks for roll calls and then jumping in their cars and yeah. you know being directed from run to run to run uh, that's all true but I also found that we had a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. um, in in San Francisco. We always r- rode two to a car, so you always had a partner, yeah. and um, so the flexibility was amazing. Like you had your car sector, you were assigned a car sector in one of the ten districts in San Francisco, and then you answered your calls for service. But in between, you had the ability to self-initiate activity you can see things and take action you can go talk to people you can you know look for you know people that whose pictures of their mugshot you had in their your pocket and um you know proactive policing was alive and well and and i i totally hear what you're saying about how policing today is definitely different than when i got into the department you know 40 years ago and even though I only left, you know, less than 10 years ago, you know, so many things have happened since 2020. This just amazing, you know, coincidence or, you know, this, this, you know, confluence of events of, yeah. you know, George Floyd and COVID and, you know, this, this amount of vilification that just came from out of left field. I mean, it was growing, I think. Uh, I think people tend to get um, complacent when crime is down and uh, mm-hmm. things are going well. And so, um, you know, I don't re- I don't recall when police were were so vilified to the point where a lot of them are frankly staying in their cars and they're not doing a lot of proactive work. So but that surprised me then um, the challenges, the, the paramilitary challenges were not that great. I mean, you follow orders and you do things, you, you read the general orders and you, you know, you do everything the right way and you're fine. Um, I had some really modest goals and that was to be promoted at least once over my career and not right, to serve. Check that box. <laughs> yeah, right. Check that box and not to serve any sort of discipline, like be given days off or fired. Those were my two main goals. All the baseline. Right. And Knockwood, you know, uh, I accomplished those. Um, Yeah. I mean, the other challenges were just you didn't have a lot of um, control over who your bosses were or sometimes if your partner was sick or out or whatever, that you were thrown in another radio car with somebody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're human beings and there's different people out there. And sometimes you got lucky and you, you partnered up with somebody fun and good and sometimes somebody miserable and not fun <laughs> and you're going to be spending a lot of time together yes there yeah. so kind of reflecting on this very long and accomplished career what were the big moments like what are the ones that you'll look back on with a sense of fondness and admiration to feel like i did i did a good thing that day Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in my lower ranks as a police officer in uniform pushing a radio car, 
that was probably some of the most rewarding experiences I ever had in my career. Um, I was involved in an officer-involved shooting. I wouldn't say that was a highlight of my career, but I'm lucky to be sitting here talking to you. Mm. And uh, it was significant. And, um, you know, I was just talking with someone about the myths and realities of officer-involved shootings. And I'd love to do a show on it to talk about how, you know, um, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions of, of officers involved in shooting about going to the bar right after and celebrating and, mm. you know, getting a notch put on your gun and all that stuff. I mean, mm. the realities are it is very impactful. It impacts your sleep. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're Catholic, it it really hits you hard about shooting another human yeah. and um, the thoughts that you have about. It would happen. What, what, what if it happened the other way? And I have two young kids at home, yeah. and I hurt. I got hurt uh, while fighting this guy before the shooting. I hurt my knee, and um, I was out for about two weeks. And the good and the bad was I had time to reflect on whether or not I wanted to continue with the job, the career. And it was only about you know my ninth year in, so. You know, it was a turning point where I'm thinking, wow, I got to go like restart somewhere else or do I just, you know, plow through this and get through it? And and I did. And I never looked back. I mean, I, I got some really good help, um, some really good psychological help, um, you know, thought about other ways of dealing with it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I never looked back and I had a great career beyond that. And then in investigations, um, I really felt you know, my value to the department and the people in in doing investigations and doing good investigations and solving crimes that maybe somebody else couldn't have because of the effort and um, you know, just being thoughtful about it. Yeah, those are some solid wins in the midst of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so curious about that time that you were off. And I feel like that's like a whole nother show where I could pick your brain about that. Um, like that choice point of do I stay in? Do I not stay in? What are the risks for me and my family? And and how to kind of wrestle and tangle with that question in the span of a time that would be really um, scary and hard hard to reconcile, hard to make sense of, unless you do have some pretty solid supports in place. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, um, you know, you think about what you did up to that point, and then in raising your kids and how you're going to go back to the job and how you're going to handle things, be more aware than you already were. You know, I don't know if that was possible, but, um, you know, it was it, by then it was ingrained in me and it was a passion. I really had a passion for policing. So it wasn't really much of a choice. Um, and I, I think the things that I carried with me after the shooting were going to happen, whether I was a dog walker or a butcher or a truck driver. Right. So, I was just going to have to reconcile those things, you know, dreams and sleep patterns and, you know, fitness and all these other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to jump back to that in a second, because I want to ask you about some of the coping strategies that you have kind of found useful over the course of your career, the kinds of things that allowed you to remain sustainable for that length of time. But before I do that, I do want to ask kind of the counterpoint question to what are the big win moments, which is, are there any like regret moments or if I could have done it differently, I would have done it differently? Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about that. And, 
you know, I can't point to any specific incident or uh, dealings. I think, you know, I'm more mindful. I'm more in the present now probably than I was then, of course. Um, and just having more patience maybe with people. Um, I feel like I, I'm, I've got a really great sense of humor and I feel like I'm pretty affable. Actually, I actually was criticized by the future chief coming out of the police academy that I was too affable, that mm. joking around uh, might get me in, into trouble. And then the next person who, who gave me my debrief said, hey, your sense of humor is going to get you out of a lot more scrapes than into them, so mm. don't change. But I think, you know, the balance of home life, social life, and police life, those are three different things. And it's really... Um, maybe it's an anomaly that you have someone who's really balanced in all three. Mm. And I think if I could have been more, you know, more self-aware, I would have been more careful in my socialization um, with my peers. And, um, and then when I promoted to some of my subordinates in that I was so mission focused, so driven mm. for the mission of the agency that sometimes um, you know, maybe I didn't, uh, consider the individuals. And I mean, since, since then, I mean, you know, 20, 30 years pass and, you know, my wife is into Buddhism and I've gone to retreats with her and I, mm -hmm. you know, I think I've become more mindful and thoughtful and, uh, compassionate and thinking about what the other person's thinking. You know, I wish I had those skills, and those trainings back then, I could have maybe been a better boss. I think I was a pretty good boss in in a lot of respects, but I think I could have been more more present than just seeing people as good or bad. And yeah. that you know that's that's the struggle with today's you know quote criminal too. That some are into crime for being in crime, and some are there because of their situation, totally. whether it's a mental health issue or economics, they're poor, they're homeless. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we tend to to compartmentalize or make a dichotomy that somebody's good or bad. And of course, you know, there's so much middle ground. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're into musicals. Uh, <laughs> maybe you're not. But it makes me think about, uh, I, I love Les Miserables. Um, and the Jean Valjean character, like he's a thief. That's that's how the whole book, the whole the whole play starts, is that he's stolen something. He goes to jail, and he's finally given his time, and he gets to go back into the community. And Javert is his character. That's the police character, and he's very black or white. He's very like you're a good guy or a bad guy, and if you're a bad guy, you're a bad guy forever, and you can never change. And Jean Valjean goes through this like whole process of changing and being a better person and contributing back to the community. And, um, and Javert comes to this point where he can't, like he cannot tolerate the, dis like the internal distress of seeing a bad guy become a good guy to the point that he jumps off a bridge and dies because he cannot handle it. He can't, he can't stop holding on to this story. And it's fascinating because I think people are more like that than we care to admit that we we do like a bit of a black or white. We like to believe that it's all or nothing. It's more comfortable that way because either I can go, you're a bad guy and that means I'm nothing like you and I could never be like you or you're a good guy and you're like me. 
But if there's gray, then suddenly where do we land relative to other people? And are we more at risk for things than we can even know about if my economic status were a little bit different or Mm -hmm. if my conditions looked a little bit different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I totally relate. Yeah. It's always fascinating to me how we how we believe in things being so black or white when so very many things are many, many shades of gray. Yeah. Well, I do like musicals, but not sad ones. I mean, I like. <laughs> You're more like a Mamma Mia kind of guy. Mamma Mia, La La Land. Even that's distressing Mama at the Mia. end. Music. <laughs> I mean, there's some amount of fairness to that. Yeah, that's fair. So let's circle back to the piece about coping. And it does sound like you've kind of adapted some cool skills in these later years in terms of mindfulness and being present. And and that's really cool. I'm curious, and maybe there's a bit of a like then and now answer to this. I don't know. So I'll throw that to you. But when you were in the thick of policing, how did you cope? What were the skills or the resources that you found really useful to kind of make it through? And on the flip side and or... Um, are there things that you do now that you kind of wish you could have done more of then or skills you've adapted now that are, that you're finding really helpful in terms of coping? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think I come from that era or at least the tale of the era that where alcohol, you know, the answer was in the bottom of a glass. And so, you know, it wasn't quite the choir boys, but you played on softball teams. You're drinking at 6 a.m. before the game at 8 a.m. if you got off on midnights, right? And so those were sort of some coping skills, Um, you know, going to ball games and and things like that, hanging out with people. Uh, I think more, though, um, I listen internally more. I'm more into walking and music and uh, listening to books on tape. And uh, I know when I need my own time. I know when I need to decompress and in the past, that might have meant depre- you know, decompressing with a glass of something. Yeah. Whereas now it's either, you know, jump on the Peloton or go for a walk or listen to a book, um, but to unplug a little bit and yeah. not engage people when you're in a bad um, mm-hmm. state, right? So uh, I think I know myself well enough to know when to sort of back out of a room as opposed to charging in. And um, not always. My wife says, you know, I do a lot of uh, narrative driving, (laughs) you know, where I'm yelling at the guy cuts me off or doesn't signal or speeds up, doesn't merge, tailgates me, all those things. So I still have that. But I tell her that's me talking it out rather than pulling up, you know, running the guy off the road. You should be grateful that it's coming out this way. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about, I love this piece you said, I think I know myself well enough to know when to back out of the room versus when to go charging in. And that's a cool statement. I think one of the things I find interesting is I don't think a lot of people actually do know for themselves where that line lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like we've had this conversation a bunch of times on the show about like, we do a lot of living our lives just as people, first responders or not, we do a lot of living our lives as people in in just like this half conscious day-to-day monotony of life kind of thing where we're so busy that we don't even uh, like A, recognize a feeling even if we have one 
um, to like know it and name it and identify that I'm even feeling it um, because we're just in this like go mode all of the time. And so I think we also don't necessarily have awareness of like when I have this feeling, it usually means this for me. Like we're just so in it that it's kind of the can't see the forest for the trees. I can't almost know or name myself because I'm just so busy and the caught up of the moments. And so I'm curious, like what for you became the indicators that helped you know where that line is for you, when I need to back away, when I need to go do these pieces over here to take care of myself versus when I do need to seek out support or connect with people that I care about. What are those like uh, little niggly kinds of pieces that give you that heads up one way or the other? Like the internal warning system? Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, experience, right? I've been accused of, you know, taking way too many chances in, um, you know, issues that, you know, could be career killers, right? Like standing up against people um, in places where they could do you harm, right? Not not like physical harm, but political harm. And, um, you know, it's so funny. My students will sometimes say, hey, I saw you on this YouTube. <laughs> And I know exactly the one they're talking about because it was at a, a meeting uh, before our police commission. Okay. And the one of the anti-police police commissioners was just railing on me. I was standing up there on behalf of the community to push forward this, um, this policy that they wanted people um, moved up the street who were blocking and, you know, threatening and, and all this other stuff. And it passed. But in the questioning, uh, this commissioner just hammered me over relentlessly about, isn't it true you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to, of course it was awful, right? Mm. And I responded with, well, you're asking me if I still beat my wife. Mm. And you know the old saying, right? That there's no, there's no good answer to that because if I say, no, I don't, there's a connotation that I did. And of course, nobody's going to say yes. So there were gasps from the audience. And that, you know, that haunts me today. That one, you know, and I should have just kept my mouth shut and said, excuse me, you know, what is the question? Um, right. To be more reasonable. And then I've gone toe to toe with other commissions and, and people like that, where, you know, over time, uh, you know, if your bosses call you in and say, gosh, can you just grin and bear it sometimes? And, um, you know, I go by that credo that says you know, evil wins when good men do nothing. And for me, it's really hard, you know, whether it's on social media or if it's someone saying something in the newspaper or live or in, in a debate with me that is, you know, patently untrue or that they're cherry picking facts to support their side. Yeah. And I'll speak up against it. And, you know, I just try to be more measured now. I try to be a little more polite. Playing golf. Here's a great example. I'm playing golf, and this guy is standing next to me while I'm trying to tee off. And then mm -hmm. he hits his ball, and he goes running out in front. And I'm trying to hit my ball, and I'm behind him. And I want to just tell him, hey, you moron, move out of the way. I'm trying to hit. And, of course, I'm, I don't say that, right, because I'm more controlled now. Mm -hmm. But I thought about it afterwards and I thought, I'm going to I'm going to say something really constructive next time. Like, hey, I'm really sorry, but I get really distracted. Could I get you to move right over here? Right. Yeah. Be, you know, think about it from 
his point of view where am I going to say something where he's going to get defensive and then all bets are off or right. you know I say something that's more suggestive and cooperative and then we're all good to go. Behind the Line is sponsored by Beating the Breaking Point. Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, this program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of this piece about like, how do we move with intention, right? Like we all have an inside our head voice and it's not as nice as the outside of our head voice. I, I think most people who hear my outside of my head voice think I'm a fairly good person. The inside of my head voice is less nice. Um, and like, for sure, that's true for everybody, right? That we all have that narration that's like what I'd like to say. <laughs> and I think one of the really fun parts of my job is people will tell me the thing that they thought in their head that they did not say, but wanted to say, fantastically entertaining, let me tell you, to be the receiver and bearer of the many voices that live inside people's heads that are like, what I wanted to say to that guy was, because um, we need the catharsis of, of getting it out of our heads for a minute. You can do that with your therapist. Um, but it's this piece, right, of like, we, we can recognize that the inside of our head voice has meaning in terms of expressing this big feeling that we feel but it doesn't necessarily do it in a way that benefits me or anybody else around me. And so how do we shift that into something more meaningful, more constructive that allows us all to take from this and move forward together? So whether that's the guy at golf or whoever else that we're interacting with, um, but for sure it's easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes you realize it as you're saying it. Right. <laughs> Totally. Right. Or it's like, I find it's a practice skill. Like I can do it really easily when I'm at work. Like my, my work self is very good at managing my inside my head voice and shushing her a little bit. Um, that said, when my husband does something that pisses me off, that inside my head voice has a much harder time staying under control. Um, and so, right, like different spaces in our lives will get different pieces of us. But I also think that that's kind of one of those pieces when we kind of circle back to this idea of like indicators, mm. like one of the indicators I know in my own life for my own stress level and, and how I'm doing is 
when that inside my head voice is coming out a lot more, especially with my loved ones, because that's where it will come out first, because they're the safe people. They're the people that I know will love me in spite of my inside my head voice. Um, But they probably won't love me forever that way if I keep it up. Um, And so like, I, I, when I hear it, and I see their faces, that's the thing that kind of checks it, right? That says, something is up here, you're not sufficiently investing in your okayness. And it's tipping, like it's starting to show up and creep out in places that you don't want it. So what are you going to do about that? Right. Right. I'm curious if there's other pieces that you felt like are those indicators for you? Like I get that they're going to be really personal and probably different for you than they might be for other people. But those indicators that say like I'm walking that line to kind of burnout or, or, you know, stress levels that feel like they're not being managed so well. Yeah, no, I think that's where it's really helpful to have a network, somebody that you can bounce something off of. I mean, at school, I can't say what I want to say to the students, right? And they're learning and they're watching me. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to be measured in front of my students. And then even with faculty, I mean, I'm at a really liberal college. I am at San Francisco State University. And, um, you know, we but we have a thousand kids, a thousand students in the criminal justice major. And so I think a lot of them take my classes because they know about me and they know my career. But we have other people on faculty who do not like police and they their message is counter to mine. And, um, you know, I have to be collegial with them and get along with them and don't confront them and, you know, don't disagree with them openly. I might, um, you know, ask about something from a position of curiosity as opposed to, you know, contention. And, you know, that seems to be a good strategy. Mm -hmm. That is a good strategy. Not an easy one to implement, especially when we have our own kind of like passion and vested interest in the subject matter but valuable in terms of like people do want to share their perspective and they value being heard and feeling like their position is um valued into some respect respected and so i think if we can enter from curiosity it gives us an entry point that maybe takes some of the defensiveness off a little bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah for sure I'm curious, like as someone who has been working as an educator now for those who would enter into something like law enforcement potentially down the road, are there pieces that you find um, are of significant value in terms of what you pass along to your students as they consider this kind of a profession? Yeah, so I mean, I, I tell them to pay attention to the training, pay attention to the education, and you know, read it, learn it, live it. And also to seek mentors at school and then in the police department if they get in. Um, Like, you know, so many of my students, um, while they're students of mine, will come to me, talk with me after class. They don't want to talk about it in, in class, but they'll ask about the testing process, about, you know, the psychological, the drug use, the, you know, polygraph and all those things. And so... You know, I feel like I feel like I'm in a good position to be able to be an advocate for law enforcement, public safety, where a lot of the leaders in place now, you know, deputy chiefs and chiefs can't really jump out and say things in public that um, you know might 
be offensive to some people. Mm. And sometimes that's defending their department. I wish they would do it more. But when a reporter or anybody calls me asking to clarify something, I'm happy to do it because I feel like if, if there's not someone who will, then the narrative is created, whether you speak the truth or not. So mentoring students has always been you know, rewarding for me. I wish I had a mentor growing up and, and looking into um, getting into law enforcement. Once I was in, I did, I had my own mental image of my mentors and I try to take the best of people who modeled those great leadership qualities. And it, it became a little bit more formal later on in my career when I would go seek people out before promotional tests. Like I'd go to the lieutenant of the SWAT group and say, look, I'm taking the sergeant's test and I'm really not that, you know, current with what do we do if we have a barricaded suspect? And, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, they'd be flattered and give you, you know, a cursory answer. And sometimes they would, you know, see that you're worth talking to and give you more time and effort. And so for me, I mean, I feel like I've been paying back for, you know, the 10 years that I've been teaching yeah. in, in with the students, but I'm getting paid for that. And so I tell them, when you graduate, call me anytime. And I'm in touch with 20 or 30 students over my career who, you know, I see them on LinkedIn, they get a new position or, you know, whether it's whether or not it's a police agency, if they're a counselor or a probation officer, parole officer, guidance counselor, you know, teen mentor, women's shelter, whatever. And they, and I have students who've been at all of those things. Yeah. It's really, it's really rewarding for me. And, you know, I applaud them and I want them to, you know, succeed and keep moving forward. So mm. there are people like me everywhere. And so this, it's up to the student to seek them out yeah. and maybe get rejected by a few people in the process, but you'll find one. Um, and like I say, the training, I mean, training saved my life. Uh, I did things I couldn't remember doing until post-incident. And that was because I had a really good, um, you know, tie-in to the training. And, you know, I think that's why I succeeded in a lot of the promotionals, because I, I bought into it like reality. I love movies. And I take that leap, you know, from reality whenever I'm called upon in a movie theater. And mm. in testing, I would always say, okay, I am the lieutenant. I am the captain. This is happening. What should I do? What are my resources? What have I been trained to do? And for me, it was, you know, like, you know, role playing or acting. And it was fun where I know some people, you know, were just frozen by those experiences. Mm. So I tell the students, you know, get immersed in the training, really, you know, understand it. And and for us as as teachers, instructors, you know, to use the kind of pedagogy to reach all the different learning styles, whether it's visual or audio or tactile, you know, we need to be able to, you know, change things up. I like using um, small group exercises so that the students can learn from each other as well. And it's funny, I'm going to teach at a um, field training officers national conference uh, in June on bringing pedagogy 
from universities to academies and field training. Hmm. Interesting. It's like a fun marriage back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Like how they inform each other. That's cool. Hmm. Well, and you also have, I mean, you've got so many layers. It's kind of fun. Um, so you've got this long background and you're now in education, but you are also working with police one and you're contributing author as well as podcast host. And so I would also love to just be able to share with our audience some of that, because I think there are some who might be really interested in kind of seeing what you do there and connecting into some of that work. So I'd love if you wanted to share just a little bit about some of that. Sure. Thanks. Uh, you know, I write articles about uh, taking tests, promotionals. Uh, I talk about incident command and emergency management, all the things that sort of, you know, feed back into my education and background and training. And I've had really good experiences in San Francisco with really large events and training and managing and responding to. So, you know, I want to share that. So I do that with articles. Sometimes my editor will drop an idea on me and say, hey, can you write about this? And then um, with Police One, I also do a, another column, a, a monthly column called State Your Case, and it's a debate column. And uh, Joel Schultz is a retired chief from Colorado, and he and I go back and forth. We don't get to choose our side. Our editor throws down None. a gauntlet, right? And so you're on a debate team, and so you got to do a little bit of research, and it's point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint. It's about, you know, 1,500 words or so, but we won an award uh, from Portfolio last year for the column. And, yeah. I, you know, I really owe it to Joel um, for, you know, being like me and being as objective as we can, uh, not pushing the rhetoric, but to sort of come up with some some different perspectives on these issues that, you know, we hear about, like, should we be chasing cars anymore? Or, um, you know, do, do police need a college education and, you know, things like that. And then my podcast is called Policing Matters. And I'm on Instagram at policing underscore matters podcast. And, um, you know, I post the shows every Thursday. So my editor, Nancy Perry at Police One, uh, edits the video, the, the audio. And now we've been doing a couple of YouTube uh, video segments as well. And I've just been lucky to have just the greatest guests. I mean, I just talk, I just interview and the guests are the, I tell them, you know, you're the talent. I'm just the host. And I just been so lucky to have, you know, I talked to Bill Bratton at a conference last year. Uh, I've talked to Chuck Wexler from Perf, um, uh, the Gracies from the, the Gracie family of jujitsu, uh, the, mm -hmm. President Rick Smith of Axon. I mean, so many interesting guests. And I mean, my 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 latest um, passion is for technology that's going to help police and mm -hmm. fill the void. Um, you know, I talked to somebody from Ebola Rap last year at a conference at the FBI uh, National Academy conference, and it is a force alternative that's like a taser, but it shoots out these prongs that wrap you, your legs or your arms. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, finally, right? You know, they're taking away the carotid. They're taking away the taser in some places. Uh, and But they don't they don't backfill with new use of force options. Yeah. So, so cops are really, you know, you know, their, their options are less and less. And they're still getting in the same kinds of conflicts. And mm -hmm. so it's really great to see these kinds of things. You know, there's these 
mechanisms that will shoot to a car's tire and lock it up and pull it back like a tire during a, a chase. And so all these things, you know, we don't have to stand down. We don't have to say, okay, we're not chasing that car or we're not going to confront this guy. Um, but, you know, every once in a while I talk to somebody who says, you know, here we are at LAPD and we, you know, we come across a single barricaded suspect in a house and our, our new tactic is to turn around and leave. And I'm, and I'm not so I'm not so comfortable with that because I worry about the next officer who responds to a call there. Okay. And, um, you know, you embolden these characters. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of people. I've had a lot of therapists and supporters of police officers and their wives and their families. And I think those are the greatest shows that really hit home when, you know, you have the, the spouses or the loved ones of the police officers themselves mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we all think these things, we all feel these things, and here's some coping yeah. mechanisms. So I really enjoy doing the show. It's 30 minutes. Um, and, you know, you can listen to it while you're on the treadmill or going for a walk or, you know, just yeah. about anything but water related. <laughs> right. That's the one difficulty. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I think it's it's such a cool mechanism, right? Like I think when we were looking at how do we how do we make an impact, how do we scale our impact? Because that was really the podcast started as this place of me having sessions and feeling frustrated at being contained to only helping like max five people in a day, mm. and hearing very similar stories that overlap despite the fact that they're in different professions. They all kind of fall under this first response frontline umbrella. Um, and so, you know, I'd have like an emerged nurse and then a social worker and a corrections officer and border patrol. And, but like, they're all telling the same story. Like it feels like Groundhog Day. And, and so it was just this place of like, I'm frustrated that I can't get ahead of where you come in to see me in my office because that's the entry point to come see me. Um, but to come see me, you're already so far, so deep in that you think you need to come see me. And how do we get ahead of this a little bit and on a scale that is higher than five people in a day? Cause that's not going to do a whole heck of a lot. And the cool thing about the podcast, like how many emails I've gotten that are like, I had to pull my car over cause I was crying enough that it wasn't safe for me to drive anymore. But like that, you know, people are feeling like known and understood and valued in the midst of these jobs that they're doing that are hard and they are given it for the communities they're serving and they're not getting a lot in return. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that are talking about this, but I really find hope in, in the people who talk about resilience and, and skills um, rather than just sort of mire in the milieu. There's your uh, there's your musical yeah. in the milieu of, of uh, you know, police work. And some people are not meant to be, you know, they're not cut out to be cops. And so. You know, some people have really some tough decisions to make, but uh, to be miserable, gosh, nobody signed up for that. Mm-hmm. Or to, to be depressed or, you know, alcohol or drug dependent because of the job, then, yeah, something really needs to change. But, I mean, I think about my upbringing and, you know, some of the challenges I've had in my life. And, um, you know, I, I always talk about two partners in the same radio car who experience the same trauma same traumatic events and, and we see way too much in policing yeah. 
but how is it that one comes out in really good shape, you know, works out, runs, does whatever, and then the other one just, you know, goes into the tank and we need to find that formula, you and I, and put it out there and, uh, you know, get people on a regimen where they're not just feeling awful all the time. I mean, I'm working on it. The thing, so I don't, I don't know that you know this, but, um, prior to the podcast existing, the first thing I did, I, so this actually happened. I had a day where I had had several clients back to back where it was this groundhog day thing. And then in that week, there was a number more and they were all relatively new. And I found myself saying the exact same spiel about like, this is how your brain works. This is what stress and trauma does to your brain. This is what you need to do to help correct for this. Um, and I felt like, can I just record myself and press play? Like it would be way less work um, because I'm not saying anything crazy innovative here, but like, how the hell do you guys not know this yet? Like, how is this not a part of your training? How is this brand new? And every single one of them was like, oh my gosh, if I had known this back then, I don't know that I would be where I am right now. And I'm sitting there going like, that's not a thing. That shouldn't be a thing. We're at a stage in our culture, in our society, where we should be able to have these very basic principles included in core training for whatever the profession is. This is a part of what you are going to live. And there is no one who is like beyond that, who's so fantastically gifted walking in the door that they're somehow less likely to experience the impact of the work that you're doing. I mm. often say on this show that like no one's wired to do this work. There is no human who is born as a baby wired to do and be exposed to what you guys do. Um, so that there is somebody who lasts 30 years is really just miraculous and some fantastic, you know, skill sets that you must have implemented in order to be able to do that. Cause I don't think that it's a thing that you should be able to expect of all people. It's a very hard job. And so I put together this resilience training program as an online course. And that was the first thing I did. And it was in this effort to like something, I need to put something into the world to know that I have done something about this. Um, because I'm tired of hearing the story of it just isn't there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And so I did it. I put this course together and then I realized that nobody cares about who I am at all. Um, and like nobody just like stumbles upon a resilience training program because they're Googling like, what do I do when I feel depressed and suicidal as a first responder? It turns out that my program is not what comes up on Google when you search that. And so it, I kept getting advised to like, you have to do more to be seen in all of this. And if you, if you think this program matters, do more to be seen so people will see it. And I had the idea for the podcast and just thought it would be fun to do anyways. And so that's where the podcast kind of married into all of it. But it is this effort to like, how do we, how do we front load this differently for people so that it's not once they're already in PTSD and occupational stress injuries, that they are getting this information that they should have had at the outset. How do we give them skill sets that will carry them through that they can adapt to make work for them at different stages in their lives and careers? Mm -hmm. How do we be more proactive in that instead of being like, oh, darn, we lost another one. You know, they, I guess they just weren't cut out for the job. None of us are. None of us are cut out for this job. And yet some of us are somehow making that work. So how do we, how do we make more of that? Yeah, well, you know, it's it. You know, luckily we've seen some more grants come out talking about officer wellness, and um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great resource for you too. And, you know, at every FBI conference, IACP conference, PERF conference, officer wellness and well-being is is always on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that it's becoming more that way. I think so, I get so many of the people who are kind of like in that 20-ish year timeline, um, who've been in it long enough that their original training didn't include anything about wellness. Mm. It included stuff about what to look for in someone else's mental health crisis, but it offered like, right? Like I hear a lot of like, we were told to keep an eye out for PTSD. No one ever told me what that looks like to be able to keep an eye out for it. But I was very clear that I needed to keep an eye out for it. And so when they go off because they're having like chronic stomach issues and poor sleep and insomnia and nightmares, they didn't know that that was markers of PTSD, right? And so they were suffering through that, just thinking like, I guess I've got stomach issues. I guess I've got insomnia issues. And they're chalking it up to like medical when it's actually mental health. And had we course corrected for that way sooner and not just like tied it through it, hoping it would be done someday, we probably could have done more about that way sooner and had a lot less negative impact as a result of it. But we weren't training people in what to look for. Right, right. Right. I think it is it is changing and I'm so excited to see that change coming. It does feel like it's quite drastically different depending on where you are and the resources at the disposal of the the professions or the agencies within those professions, which is hard, but it's coming. We need it. We need it so much. Yeah. It has been really fun to chat with you today, Jim. I really appreciated your insights and wisdom. It is always fantastic when we get to have someone who has had such longevity in their career and can contribute so so much and so thoughtfully to the conversation from that kind of perspective. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks. I appreciate the kind words and um, continued success to you. Thanks so much to you as well. I have some listeners that I think will be jumping in and listening to you these days. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) I want to say one more big thank you to my guest for today. It is so wonderful to get to have this opportunity to talk to some incredible and amazing people who have been out there doing the work, seeing the stuff, and figuring out how to hold it differently. I'm so grateful for the willingness of these incredible people to jump on with me, share their stories, and share with you the various ways that they're learning and finding to move through this kind of work with some amount of sanity intact. I think we can all take something really special from that. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I also love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. If you have any feedback for my amazing guest today, please let me know and I'm happy to pass it along. I continue to be so amazed and inspired by this community that we are building and creating together. I'm so grateful for your support and that many of you are so incredibly keen to share about Behind the Line to others on the front lines. Thank you so much for sharing with those you know. 
I want to let you know that we do have ways to support sharing. So if you reach out to me, I can send you posters and cards and all kinds of other ways that you can share with your workplace and your colleagues about Behind the Line and our other resources. Also know that you can share any of our social media posts or forward any of our emails that we send you with reminders about the show. We just want more people to be supported. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Many of our summer series uh, episodes will be videotaped, and we will include those recordings on YouTube. So check those out if you want to join us in real life. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes, or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, and you can access our email list by clicking to get our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, which helps you facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of our different resources available to you guys because the work you do really, really matters to our communities, but way more than that, you matter. Your life matters, and the people who matter to you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, but as well in your very real and amazing life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.